Okay, thank you again for being here, and we have added some accoutrement this week with the PA system. Some of you were complaining you couldn't hear it last week, so <coughs> we wanted you to be able to hear. So, uh, obviously, uh, we're bringing in the professionals now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the have given up, you know, way beyond our expertise. And um, uh, Dr. Clark is easily one of the smartest, most thoughtful, uh, researchers that I've ever been around, and uh, he's, he's truly blessing us with his attendance this morning. But because we need to be really productive, you know, I've kind of worked out some of the questions that you all have submitted, and I want to really use the time wisely and get into those. And so, Dr. Clark, the first question is, how do you know when you might need professional help or the help of a counselor or psychiatrist? And then from that, how do you know if your child has a medical behavior or disorder that needs pharmacology or medication? Um, versus, how do you know if you just need better parenting skills? Well, I, I, I was told to save this for the end, but you know, I, hearing this story over here, and, and we're the ones with the reputations for having the dirty minds, that's all I had to say. So, uh, I'm just gonna let all that go and just leave it there for your contemplation. Uh, okay, so, you know, there was a lot of questions that were uh, sent ahead uh, this morning, and uh, I told John, you know, I'm glad to come do this, but I think any one of those questions could have been, uh, you know, a 40-minute presentation easily. Um, I thought a lot about this question in particular because it's one that I know comes up when I do things at schools or with uh, parent organizations, teacher organizations, people ask this one. Um, I think it's important to remember that when a parent is asking these questions about whether or not they belong uh, in the psychiatrist's office or if their son or daughter needs um, medical psychiatric attention, uh, typically the answer is going to be yes. Um, I tell parents on, on day one of every assessment that I do that the world's expert in your son or daughter is you, not me. Um, you've been with them from the day they were born. You know them in a way that no other person, no matter how caring, thoughtful, well-trained, knows them. Um, you, you have that kind of intimate day-to-day -day knowledge of them that no one will ever be able to glean in a different circumstance. <coughs> and I also think that, that that idea sort of merges into one of the challenges that parents face when they start to become aware of some of these issues. And the process that goes on is a grief process. Some of you may have read in, in your training or maybe you've studied it here at Otter Creek, the, the concept of the stages of grief. And these were made famous by psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who studied people in hospice care. And she said that there are a series of, of stages. Uh, denial comes first, followed by anger, and then bargaining, depression, and lastly grief, or pardon me, acceptance. And so I think that, again, no one who's been through a grief process themselves would say that it goes as smoothly and neatly and just flows in that manner. But I think everyone who's lost someone um, I've lost my parents, I've lost my dear grandmother who was unbelievably important to me in my life. And when I look back, I see elements of all those stages, not in a nice linear progression, but I see elements of every one of those descriptions in my own experience, and I think most people do. And I, I believe this is germane, or I believe it's relevant, because the first step is denial. And I think when, when parents begin to ask these questions, the first thing that tends to happen in response is, oh no, you know, it's not, it's not that bad. I mean, right? It's, it's, I mean, don't all kids, you know, do some of these things? Doesn't every child, you know, 
it, isn't it just maybe a stage? It's probably a stage. It's probably something where, you know, they're just kind of facing something new. Life has thrown them a curveball. And so they've got a, a new challenge and they're just struggling a little bit to, to get past it, right? And so one of the things that I see as a clinician and virtually 100% of my work nowadays is in the clinic, seeing patients, working with families. One of the things that I see as a clinician is that folks will come in and when I ask them to tell me the story of their child's life starting from um, pregnancy and walking forward sometimes, you know, 10 or 15 or pushing 20 years of um, history, what I'll, what I'll so often hear is that very early on parents were asking themselves these questions. And very early on, well-meaning people around them were saying, oh, it's okay, it's going to be all right. Um, very well-meaning pediatricians or family practice doctors would say, oh, he's all boy. Or, you know, every little girl can be emotional or moody. Uh, you know, this is, just, this is just nothing to worry about. But remember this, the, the, the pediatrician or the family practice doctor is no different than any other human. They, they love you and your family. They love that child that's sitting there in front of them. They don't want to think that there's anything wrong either. And they're often rewarded for reassuring parents. The reality of it is in a, in a primary care setting is that the, the average visit in a primary care setting is about eight minutes. So you're walking in with eight years of concern and they have eight minutes to assess it. Who's more likely to be right? You are more likely to be right. And frankly, if you're sitting with me and you're telling me something and I'm saying, oh, you're still more likely to be right, even after hours spent taking careful, detailed histories. One of the things that I've learned is I always check in with parents. I always say, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm thinking developmentally, and what I can do is kind of put it in a context for you and say, well, this is what you, know, you expect in customary, typical development, right? And I can ask you, do you feel as if what I'm describing to you is consistent with your own observations? And if the answer is no, then you're probably right and I'm probably wrong, okay? So when you start to feel it early on, you're probably right. Well-meaning people are gonna probably reassure you. It's not, not because they're trying to prevent the right thing happening for your son or daughter, it's because they, they're struggling themselves with accepting it. And so there's another problem that sort of runs, you know, hand in glove with this, this process, which is the earlier uh, one intervenes in any kind of medical problem, the better the long-term prognosis. And that's because the brain is more plastic when children are younger. The brain is more flexible. They, they, you know, literally, physically, it's more adaptable at a younger age. It's also true that they haven't had a decade, decade and a half or two to practice bad habits of thought and behavior that then take on a physiological connection in the brain. And so when you pick up on something early on and you're, you know, the hairs are standing up on the back of your neck, you're right. You need to seek assessment. You, if, if reassurance doesn't fit, you need to press on and you need to get the process started as soon as possible. Because early intervention, I've watched it over and over and over again. We do, we do three groups at our uh, office. We work with very young children 
in one group. They're, they're typically as young as eight up until the ages of about 10 or 11, sort of middle school age. And we have another group that's sort of, you know, 11, 12 to 14-ish. And then we have another that's 15 to 18. So we have three groups. And we watch, and every year, it's Thursday night, every year, the, the folks who are bringing their eight, nine, ten-year-old children are sitting there, and they're some of the saddest sacks that you'll ever see. You know, I sit down in my office, and I look around, and I see these, you know, 10 or 12 parents, and they're just like, oh, man, this cannot be good. I'm sitting in a psychiatrist's office with my eight-year-old. Cannot be good, right? Intuitively, that makes sense, true? Cannot be good. However, the reality of it is, is that if you were to follow that group of people in comparison to the adolescent group where people came in their teenage years, who do you think has a better long-term outcome and long-term prognosis? The ones who started when they were young, right? Course correction. You, know, you, you want to fire a rocket to the moon, and it takes off from Cape Kennedy, or is it Canaveral again? I can't keep track, it goes back and forth. You, you fire that rocket from South Florida to the moon, and early on in its arc to the moon, if it deviates even a tiny bit, where does it end up? Off course, out of the solar system, right? Tiny little deviation on this long journey to the moon over here. But the further you go along the way, if you make the course correction early and you keep the rocket basically on track, as you get closer to the moon, you can tolerate little deviations and you still land in the Bay of Tranquility, right? So this, this is an important principle, and again, it's one that I see all the time. Folks don't want to accept it, they're reassured, and so as a result of that, diagnosis and treatment are delayed. So that's, that's, that's part one. Part two is that there are easy comparators for most families, and those are called the other children. And if you think about it, if it were purely a parenting problem, wouldn't you expect that all of the siblings would be affected to a greater or lesser degree, right? Well, I mean, it, there's, a, there's a difference in temperament between people. Obviously, some people will respond to the same parenting style in a more favorable way and others less favorable. But as a general rule, I mean, if, if it were purely a parenting issue, then you would expect that there would be some degree to which all of the involved family members would be affected. Maybe not to the same degree, but to some degree. And yet at the same time, what I often hear is, hey, we've got three children, two are wholly typically developing, and the third is having all sorts of problems. Well, maybe it's the temperament of that third child. It's possible that it is, and, it, and certainly that plays a role. I'm not saying temperament doesn't matter, because obviously it does. That would be silly to say. But it's, it's also likely that there's something unique about that, that person's development. So that's the... That's the second thing um, to keep in mind. And then is, you know, that it's, it's so often couched the way this question was couched, and I'm not fussing at whoever gave us the question because I think this is the way most people think. Is it the parenting or is it the, you know, developmental problem that really needs pharmacological treatment or needs, you know, formal psychotherapeutic intervention of some type or another? And the not satisfying but most accurate answer typically is yes. Okay. And, and again, it's not the answer people want to hear. People want to, want to hear, well, you know, if we can take this medication or we can come to this psychotherapy group or we can learn this skill or we can, you know, what have you, 
it, it's going to it's going to solve it. But the truth of it is, is that what happens is there's a there's a circular interaction that's set up, which is the the child is struggling, the parent copes as best they can with the struggle. Right? No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I've got this great idea. I'm really going to go. I think I'm just going to. Well, although teenagers think you do, but let's let's set aside that they're 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 wrong. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I'm just going to, I think today what I'm going to do is just really respond in a way that's just going to make life as difficult for my family as possible. You know, just, I may, I may do it this whole week. <laughs> right? Did any, raise your hand if you ever had that thought. <laughs> okay, right, none of us have that thought. Now, we, we wake up and we think, well, we love our family. We want to parent them in a kind, empathetic way. We want to, you know, parent them in a prayerful way, a godly way. And yet, what you know the, the 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 reality of it is is that um, sometimes we're our own personal resources are exhausted, and so we're not able to respond in the way that we want to respond. John and I were talking about this on the way in. I mean, I'm old enough, I'm experienced enough, I know enough about what works and what doesn't to know better. But you know, I have my my oldest son is affected by ADHD and dyslexia. It has been his whole life. And I find myself thinking things that are just totally irrational about what he's doing. You know, maybe he is really just out to get me, you know, like <laughs> after all I've done for him. <laughs> right? You know, where's the gratitude? Okay. So, so I know, I mean, I know that's insane. I know it doesn't, I know it's not true. I know that he's a sweet, wonderful kid who's bright and capable. But I also had to work my way through the grief process of accepting that developmentally he wasn't ready to tackle a lot of the things that needed to be tackled in his life. And that I was going to be a way more active participant in my 23-year-old's life than I ever imagined. And that we were going to have to figure out some detente, I like to call it, you know, strike some bargain where, you know, my nukes are pointed at you and vice versa, so let's don't hit the button, let's do something else. <laughs> so, so I, so I think what happens is if, if the parenting skill set is outstripped by the demands and the parents are stressed to a significant degree, they begin to regress. It's not only the child that regresses, it's the parent that regresses. And, you know, John said to me on the way in, I, he couldn't have hit it anymore on the head, is the default, or default position for most of us is, how did our parents do it? And, you know, I'm sure they did the best they could, but they may not have equipped us with the skill set to handle some of these things. And the skill set may not be intuitive. That's the other thing. It's like the intuitive thing so often is not necessarily the right thing, particularly in kids that have neurodevelopmental disorders where their brains fire differently. Um, you know, you can, you can take away their iPod and, you know, ground them from the car and, you know, do all these things. Little kids, you can make them go stay in their room, all the stuff that, you know, I, I, I don't know if maybe I'm going to share something. Don't judge. If I share something, will you not judge? All right. I told John on the way in. No judgment. Thank you. So I'm going to share this about my, my dad who's passed and is, was a wonderful dad. So let me preface this. I told John, my dad used to say to me when I get out of line, he'd say, Craig, if you keep doing that, I'm going to shoot you. And then I'm going <laughs> to, there's more. Hold on, there's more. I'm going to shoot you. And then I'm going to bury you upside down in the backyard so I can keep kicking your butt after you're gone. <laughs> now, my dad was a sweet guy, actually. But he did have a gun. And so I thought, hmm. So 
<laughs> Not sure where I was going with that. Maybe that's just a little process moment for me. But I think you get the point. You know, my dad was equipped to, to parent me in an effective way because I was an easygoing pleaser kid. But had I not been an easygoing pleaser kid, you know, he might have ended up in jail. Okay? So, so getting, getting these skills is as much a part of it, even when there's a need for pharmacology, getting these skills is as much a part of the, the process uh, as getting the right medication on board or helping a child with a developmental problem in school be supported. I was talking to uh, Pat earlier about that. So it's a, it's a blend of these things, <laughs> and it's not just medication or it's not just therapy um, uh, for the child or the, or the family, it's both. And it's because the, the source of the problem is both. The source of the problem is both neurodevelopmental in the sense that it's genetic, it's hardwired, the brain grows differently in some people, and it results in problems with self-regulation, attention, uh, ability to control one's emotions, to reflect on past experiences dynamically in the present to inform the current choice. All of these things are affected by these neurodevelopmental disorders. And it, it causes people that we see in our practice to not problem solve dynamically in the customary way. And then their parents are faced with this. And, and, and by the way, this plays no favorites in terms of intellect. You can be very bright and have these things. You can be spiritually ahead of the curve, morally ahead of the curve. You can be an old soul, but still have these things. So I, we try to practice what we preach in, in, our, in our work and, and that's why we take a, a more comprehensive approach. You know, it's not our office isn't about just let's get some medicine, it's about let's consider all these different sort of layers of the onion and on an individual basis decide how best to intervene. That's probably a more wordy answer than you wanted or thought you'd get, but I think it's the most accurate answer to that question. Absolutely. So some of you probably couldn't hear, but um, the, the question was in terms of uh, something being presented to you in terms of uh, medication intervention or, or pharmacotherapy, that it's often uh, a process to find the right treatment. And that's definitely the case. And, and honestly, I mean, I think in some ways psychiatry gets a bad rap for this um, because emotions do fly. Uh, so in, intensely around psychiatric problems and they, they affect families in ways that other kinds of medical problems don't necessarily uh, affect them. But the truth is is that it's the same in any part of any branch of medicine. You know, I work with a lot of adult patients where the customary or common thing is that they're affected by ADHD and they need treatment, the best treatment, the treatment that works best for them is a stimulant medicine, but they have one or another kind of other medical issues that stand in the way of taking a stimulant medicine. So I have to kind of liaison with their primary care doctor, work with them to try to come up with uh, a treatment that will lower their blood pressure, get their cardiovascular function in a healthy um, place. And so I watch, you know, the efforts to find the right antihypertensive drug 
uh, and they're very similar to what what we see in our office. So you can start with what's you know there's a there's a catchphrase now that everyone loves, which is evidence-based medicine, and it's a great catchphrase, and it's something that needs to be practiced. And you don't just you know go blazing paths with you know well I just kind of feel like this person needs this medicine, even though all the research says it's not the right treatment. You know you, you need to be evidence-based. But at the same time, it implies a kind of security in the treatment that simply doesn't exist. Because evidence-based means when we get 5,000 people together, this is the trend in the population. And that's all well and good. And again, you, to, to practice safely and effectively, you need to know the trend in the population. Then the, the paradox is that you're always faced with a group of one. So where that patient is on that you know, normal curve or standard distribution of patients in that 5,000 patient study, we don't know in advance. Now, we're, we're maturing. Psychiatry in particular has undergone an incredible biological revolution. I mean, there, the technology and the tools to discern who might need what is in a completely different place now than it was even 10 years ago, and certainly 20 plus years ago when I started. And so there's, there's genetic testing that can be done. There's, there are reliable objective instruments to quantify severity of symptoms. Um, you know, we can, we can use, um, I think you're going to see certain brands of imaging technology be more and more helpful. Um, lots, of, lots of tools that we have uh, that we didn't have all those years ago. But still, even within the confines of using those tools, it's, it's, this is likely given this genetic profile. Or on this, you know, Loretta image that shows us that this person's right frontal lobe isn't turning on, that's statistically meaningfully associated with an attention problem, an impulse control problem, a problem with working memory or self-regulation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who has, you know, slowing in the right prefrontal cortical area on a Loretta scan is going to necessarily suffer ADHD. It means statistically that's associated, and statistically speaking, the medications, uh, the stimulant medicines that help to augment function in that part of the brain are likely to be helpful but it doesn't guarantee a response. I'm still gonna, I'm thinking about looking up some of those words he just used. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm blushing now. <laughs> you you kind of see what I mean. I, I would just use some shorthand, I feel inclined to use some shorthand with you, and that is if you are asking yourself if you need to see a professional, are not a bad parent. You're a caring parent. You're a parent who has realized that you may be on the resources that you have. You're a caring parent. And I think the summary of what he was describing there is that that child may need some resources on their own, medication, therapy, counseling, but you as a parent also may need some different approaches and strategies because you know, we've told you with Jake, I cannot parent Jake the way I parented my other son. I can't. I want to, but I can't. But going in the doctor's office, a professional office like this for the first time, that is not a scarlet letter. If anything, you're realizing that your role as a parent you're having a generational impact. That child someday is going to be somebody's mother or father or grandfather or grandmother. And so 
just give yourself a lot of grace. Okay. The next question, this is super easy. <laughs> How can we as parents help our kids be successful without increasing anxiety or a tendency to perfection? Easy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right in this softball when I'm off. This I, you know, I, I wish I could summarize things as nicely as John just did, by the way. That, I, I, I think, perf perfectly put. And, and I, I neglected to, to appreciate sometimes that I think, and, and you hit the nail on the head, that um, there is going to be this shame or this guilt that, you know, if I'm doing this, and, and, and that's multiplied by the fact that when you say to your son or daughter, particularly your teenage son or daughter, well, I've got this great idea. Let's go over to Burton Hills and spend a little quality time with Craig Clark. They're going to say, you think I'm crazy. You hate me. That's why you want me to go is because you hate me. You love my brother, but you hate me. And you want to make me humiliate myself with this horrible man. Okay? And so, right? And this is, I don't know, those of you going through the process, that's, you know, pretty much a, a broad... Know, brush stroke of what it typically looks like. So the, I said earlier, you know, I keep asking myself, when's the gratitude going to come from my 23-year-old? I know the answer. Um, you know, it's, it's um, I don't know, decades away still. So I keep putting one foot in front of the other and hoping for the best. Uh, but John, John hit the nail on the head. You're being, and, and the whole idea of generational effects, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, and there's actually some really weird, crazy stuff that I, I'm, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. But there's an idea that the environment affects the DNA. And this is, this is something that, you know, is really a radical departure from what I was taught during medical school or even during residency and fellowship is that environmental experiences, you know, the DNA is the DNA, it's transmitted, blah, blah, blah. We all, you all learned this in biology, right? But there's a new idea that actually where the DNA dwells affects the DNA. And so if the DNA dwells in an extraordinarily stressful, difficult environment, it kind of doesn't like that. It acts up. And it not only acts up psychiatrically, but it can act up medically. And if it lives in a kind of, I don't know, place where we skip through, you know, Dewey Meadows in the morning with a song in our heart. No? Okay. That's a bit of an overstatement. But if it lives in a, if it lives in a, a typical environment where, yeah, you know, everyone's got their issues and everyone's got you know, struggles, but where the, where the environment is warm and supportive, the DNA likes it better there. And so the DNA is less fragile in those environments. It's less likely to be adversely affected. And so good news is you tend to be a healthier, happier person. So thanks for that. Now, the, the second question was, because I, I took a little tangent there, uh, how do you help? Yeah, without increasing anxiety and perfectionism. Okay, so helping people be successful without increasing perfectionism. Man, I'll tell you what. If there's something that I see a lot of, it's perfectionism. And it is poison. You know, I, it's the, it is absolute poison. It's poison to your joy. It's poison to your um, satisfaction and happiness in your life. It, it's, it's awful. And I, I tease a lot of the kids that come to see me. I tell them, you know, you, you may not listen to public radio, but you should start listening to public radio so that you can hear Garrison Keillor describe where he lives, right? He lives in Lake Wobegon, okay? Now, who's going to help me? In Lake Wobegon, all the women are strong, all the men are handsome, and all the children are above average, <laughs> right? And it's the reality of the water in which a lot of the folks end up coming to see me 
you know, as a private practitioner, a lot of people who come to see me live in Lake Wobegon. They look around and everything is seemingly, at least on the surface, peachy keen. In fact, it's better than peachy keen. Everybody's going to this great private school. Everyone's driving these nifty cars. Everyone's living in these cool houses in Franklin and Brentwood and Nashville. And it's just all you know, going swimmingly. And so if you happen to have anything other than a wholly typical developmental path, well, what do you think? What do you quickly start to think about yourself? Even honestly, if you're on a pretty typical developmental path, what do you think about yourself? What, one of the stories I tell kids when they're feeling overwhelmed by this stuff, I say, you know, I can't even tell you how many patients I had who were going to, you know, a, um, a uh, uh, Franklin Road Academy or Brentwood Academy, and I'm throwing no one under the bus here, you know, MBA, Harpeth Hall, USN, all of these, in, in these you know, difficult private schools, David Lipscomb, they're all, they're all you know, we, we send our children there for a reason because we want them to have um, an opportunity to have a higher quality education, right? Again, did you wake up in the morning and think, I want to just, you know, drive my poor son or daughter crazy with this high quality private education? No, of course not. You send them because you want them to have the best education. But in that environment, the reality of it is it's a stressful environment. It's a more difficult environment academically. Um, and they look around and they see all these people who, um, sorry, it's not politically cor correct, it's the truth, who've been selected into that environment. And as a result, they start to feel pretty badly about themselves. And that's wholly unrealistic. And I, I tell them the story about people who went to this, that, or the other private school and for whatever reason couldn't stay or didn't stay. And they go to public school and they go from, you know, middling uh, performance at best and maybe barely passing to, to making good grades. I saw this just recently. One of my patients was given the boot from a private school um, and he was a marginal student at best. He was failing some classes at the private school and he's going to a Brentwood, you know, public school and he's making straight A's there. And nothing has changed, really. I mean, his treatment hasn't changed. He's not had any revelatory moments of self-understanding. Uh, he's just showing up and doing the work, and in that environment, he's an A student. And in the old environment, he was a marginal student. So I think that the environment itself, and I'm not saying, you know, you know move out of your nice house and don't, you know, send them to public school and take the pressure off. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we have to sort of appreciate the environment that these folks walk into when they go into some of these situations. It's, it can be a very stressful environment, particularly if you're atypically developing in any way. It can be a very stressful environment. So one of the things that I think parents can do is that they can appreciate that, you know, some, some of their children may have gone to those environments and done exceptionally well and it's not a problem. And I think other, uh, other of their children may be in a little bit over their head. And so like trying to respond with empathy and to say, you know, to help me understand how you're struggling, to put supports around them, either, you know, with uh, your own resources or in cooperation with the school to give them support there to reduce the stress. And I also think, um, I say to, to kids all the time, you can guarantee a good outcome. And they look at me like, you're, you're nuts. No, you, no, you can't. Because I, I study and I still get an F. Or I try hard at every baseball practice, but I still can't hit that dang ball, you know. And I said, well, yeah, you know, you, but what you're focusing on is you're focusing on an outcome. And you have absolutely no control over outcomes. 
you know, you could be a great student, you could study thoroughly, and the teacher may construct a test that for whatever reason doesn't speak to you or that you misinterpret or don't understand. The same thing, you could be a great athlete, you could prepare for the game, you go out, and for whatever reason it's a bad matchup for you on that particular day. Catherine and I have experienced this on the tennis court. You could be, in some ways, maybe the better player and still lose. So if you're focused on outcomes and things that are outside of your control, what tends to happen? Right? Stress goes up and your anxiety level goes up. And you keep telling yourself, well, if I don't do it just exactly this one way, then I'm, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm inadequate in some way or another. But on the other hand, if you focus on the process and you say, I can guarantee success. I can guarantee that I'm gonna go to class every day that I'm not really sick and I'm gonna sit there and I'm gonna take notes to the best of my ability and I'm gonna study for the test and I'm gonna give my best effort. And if you do that, if you do those things, those performance goals, you know, and you separate yourself, or process goals I like to call them, you separate yourself from the outcome, then you can feel success, even if it comes up with a C or a D or an F. If you really gave it your best, it doesn't matter. The same is true in athletics. If you did everything you could do to prepare, and you, you took all that was within your direct control and executed it properly, you've done all you can do. And you can feel a pride and a satisfaction in that effort, even if the outcome isn't the outcome that you wanted. And the crazy thing is, all of the best performers in anything will tell you that's how they think. They don't think, I had one bad day on the court, therefore I'm a terrible tennis player. They don't think, you know, I had a failing in my business, and so therefore I should probably just close up shop and move on. I'm never going to be a success. They don't think, I'm, you know, missed three things on one test, and therefore I'm never going to be able to graduate and get my degree. They don't. They think process over outcome. They, they're, they're process oriented. And again, especially with younger children, younger children don't necessarily think that way. Even teenagers don't necessarily think that way. And you can teach them to think that way. And when you teach them to think that way, you help them to overcome perfectionism. In fact, you can even use opportunity or think of it as opportunity when they fail to meet a goal. You can think of it as opportunity to say, the, what's the lesson in the failure that you had? Because so often there's way more, it's cliche to say, but it's true, there's way more to be gleaned from the times things didn't go well from the time, than from the times that they did. And so if, if you're celebrating that, especially with a younger child, and you're reinforcing that, and honestly, if you're living that model yourself, then that's the most powerful thing, in my opinion, that parents can do to help kids rid themselves of this poison called perfectionism, and, is, and which, in my opinion, is absolute poison. And it, al it also sets you up, like people think about sort of obsessive compulsive traits and perfectionism, but it sets you up for other things too. It sets you up for depression, you know. If you think about it, if you never can feel satisfied unless you're this imaginary thing that actually doesn't exist called perfect, right? What's perfect? Perfect for whom? under what set of circumstances, to what end, for how long, there is no perfect. So if you're wrapped up in getting to something that doesn't exist, it's gonna be a hard, long ride. But if you can be present and you can drink in and enjoy the things that you can be successful in and, and be, be in the moment and be in the process, it's good stuff. Our last question is, how should parents handle disobedience and discipline in a positive way without anger? 
there are benzodiazepine drugs available for parents to take. <laughs> I prescribe them freely. No. <laughs> Actually not, just, just kidding. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, what, we'll see, with, it's, we're at the Sunday school, so we've got to use some biblical uh, phrases. You would try the patience of Job, right? <laughs> that's, that's one that my grandmother used to use. You would try the patience of Job. He was the most patient man that ever lived. You would try his patience. So, yeah, we've all been there where, you know, you feel like, golly, Ned, I mean, I'm pretty justified in being angry. And, and, and that's, that's one of the things that I think um, it, maybe we should start the answer there, which is there are going to be times when you're justifiably angry, right? And it's okay to be angry. In fact, I think sometimes it's good to be angry and to let your child know that you're unhappy with what's going on. It's, it's not cool. What they've done isn't right. It's um, against your family's beliefs or moral system. It's um, unhealthy in some way or another. It's potentially dangerous. And so giving them the message that you're dissatisfied with the, with the behavior is, I think, a, a good and healthy and positive thing to do. It helps them to grow. It helps them to form something that you know, Sigmund Freud called the superego. Um, and, and we all need that. We all need a little bit of inhibition or break on the old animal instincts, as Dr. Freud would have said, right? So there's nothing wrong with being upset. I think that the problem that sometimes being upset breeds is that the upset is shared in a loud, vocal way in the, more, or in, the, in the moment when we as parents aren't really thinking through what our goal is, clearly ourselves, all right? So, so what's your goal? If, you're, if your child has done something that is really against your morals, uh, you know, dangerous, unhealthy, what's your goal in that situation? What's the goal? Get them to stop corrective behavior. So get them to stop doing that thing and get them to start doing something else, right? I mean, you know, you, you want to have something else move in and take over where the uh, problematic behavior left off, right? And again, a good way to think about this is to say, um, you know, if he had a better card or she had a better card, they probably would have played it. You know, but everything we know about in general learning theory says that if a behavior is being sustained, it's being reinforced. How do you find the sustaining force in some of these behaviors that I know people in here right now who are worried about? There isn't one. It's not being reinforced. It implies that there's something different about that person's wiring that, that is causing them to sustain this problematic behavior. And or they simply haven't learned a, a better response. They need to learn a, a different response. Now, I said, that, I said to John one time, and he laughed, and, and I think he actually sent me an email about it, but it's one of, my, one of my favorite things to point out to parents about this, and that is, if punishment worked, you'd need one small prison. And people would go there, and they would be punished, and they would never return, right? Because have you ever been in a prison? I have. It's a horrible place. You do not ever want to go to prison. It is terrible. But yet, what happens? The theory is people would go to prison and they would come out and they would not want to go back, right? That's the theory. But what actually happens to people who go to prison? What's the reality? Yeah, the recidivism rate is enormous amongst people who go to prison. So we have like tons of evidence that punishment doesn't work and we, we, we throw around like this word rehabilitation. 
and, and again, I'm not, I don't mean to compare sweet developing children or teenagers to prisoners, but I think that, <laughs> you know, that the principle holds true, which is these, these, these folks don't, they don't have a better card to play. And so as a parent, your role is to help them develop a better hand. And so the, you know, the, the most effective um, tool is teaching. It's not punishment. And so if you think about it, the, all the research about this says that there are three themes that unite the most effective behavioral interventions. They're immediate, okay? They're directly tied to the, to the issue at hand, and they have a teaching component, okay? So three things. Immediate, obviously, you want to do immediate, but you want to do after you calm down, right? There's an old joke about going to a code, you know, when someone's dying and they're being resuscitated on the table and you're going to shock them with the paddles and all this stuff. When you arrive at a code, your first responsibility is to take your own pulse. And the reason you're supposed to take your own pulse is so that you can calm down and think. If your mind is racing off, oh my God, this person's going to die, this is horrible, I got it, what am I, oh man, is it like, I, is it atropine, is it no atropine, that, that speeds up, oh, I, right? Because what happens is when you get in that anxious state yourself, the fight or flight mechanism kicks on and the front of the brain, which is the part of the brain that solves problems, shuts off. The base of the brain and the limbic system turn on, which allow you to flee or fight to protect yourself. And this, this part shuts off, right? If you think about it, you're standing on a curb, you step out in front of a bus and you look to the left, you know, there's a bus coming. You don't need to think, is it a trailways bus or is it a Greyhound? <laughs> hmm, I might go visit my aunt on the truck. <laughs> you, know, you need to get the heck back up on that curb, right? And so the front of the brain shuts down in those fight or flight situations and you're not gonna be effective. So the first thing is calm yourself down. And I tell parents, give yourself a time out. Walk away, get your own pulse down, get your thoughts together about what you want to do. And then it needs to be tied to the problem at hand. So if the problem at hand is something that was you know, said or done inappropriately in a relationship with a sibling, how is, if you think about it, how is not playing a game or using a phone or driving a car related to that? It's really not. Again, these are things that maybe our parents used to, to some effect, but it's, it's really not. So it doesn't satisfy that second criteria. And then the third criteria, how does that really teach? And most of the kids that I see have problems for one reason or another with working memory. And so they will come in and, and I'll say, well, how's the week? Well, it's bad, it's bad. Oh, okay, what happened? Well, I you know, kind of said some bad words to my sis and uh, my parents grounded me, I couldn't drive the car. Oh, okay, so that sounds, so um, you couldn't drive the car, right? Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't drive the car. Well, how many times has that happened before where you say bad words to your sis and you couldn't drive the car? Oh man, I can't even count, <laughs> right? So I'm like, well, how did, how did you, but it sounds like you remembered, it sounds like you, um, you know, you, you said those bad words and then you couldn't drive the car. And he said, yeah, my mom texted me on the way over. I'm supposed to tell you that. I, I would have never remembered that. Okay. I'm sure we're running out of time. I see people doing that thing that people do on Sunday in church. <laughs> my granddad was a minister, and he taught me that. He said, you look out there, and you only got him for so long. So I went. <laughs> he, he did. He was. 
Um, so uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to come and share with you. I hope some of what I said was helpful and will get you thinking. And uh, again, my pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.